A few weeks ago, I was with my son Sawyer, who is quite the artist, and we he asked me, hey, Dad, can we go draw? And I said, sure. So we went and got two uh, pieces of paper out of the, uh, the computer printer. And this is why we never have paper in our printer at house. Grabbed two pens and put one in front of me and put one in front of him. And so for several minutes, we're there quietly drawing. Now, Sawyer is an artist. I, I, if you want a stick figure, I'm your guy. If you want handwriting that looks like you had a seizure, I'm your guy. But Sawyer is something quite different. And so there, very quietly and very patiently, he was drawing. And I was kind of uh, really in my own little world, doing as best as I could. It's a little stressful for me to be measured against my 10-year-old. So very violently, very quickly, grabbed a sheet of paper, and he threw it away. He goes, that one's no good. And it scared me. I'm like, buddy, you spent several minutes on that. He goes, that ah, was no good. So we went again and started drawing. I'm like, well, okay. So we went and got another sheet of paper. I kept my original paper. Went and got another sheet of paper, several minutes goes by, finally very again, he goes, that one's no good. And I thought, I've, I've got a madman in my house. There for several minutes, he then figured out he wanted to draw, and as I looked, it really wasn't as bad uh, against my drawing, but he was just not satisfied. We're going to continue the sermon series of the book of Genesis, and today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and be there. And as we read Genesis chapter 6 in just a few moments, it may feel like God's taking out a sheet of paper in creation, and He's crumbling it up, and He's saying, that one's no good. What we're going to find today is not so much information that might cause us to question God, but it's going to find us an information about who we are in relationship to God. Genesis 6, it's interesting. We're going to see darkness and wickedness increase on the earth. We're going to see violence. We're going to see bad all the way to the boat. Today's sermon title is entitled Bad to the Boat as we look at Genesis 6 and what God does through Noah and the beginning of the ark reality. Genesis chapter 6, read with me, starting in verse 1. The Bible says, the man, Then when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. And when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh, had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover its inside with pitch. 
And this is how you are to make it. Now, I won't go on on how we make the ark. I'll let Pastor Dave do that next week. But I want to pick up the story in verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breadth of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall become into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your son's wife with you. And every living thing of all the flesh you shall bring of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kind, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. He did it all that God had commanded him. Let's pray. Father, we pray as a reading of your word, you would draw men and women and boys and girls into relationship with your son, Jesus. We pray, Father, in these moments that we unpack your word, that Lord, your spirit would guide us and direct us. Father, today, that whatever may be on our heart to distract us from this time, we pray that the spirit of peace would overwhelm us, that, Lord, we can find our focus and our intention on you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, if you have a preacher friend, any preachers in your life, Genesis 6 is not necessarily a favorite passage among preachers. It is hard to preach. There are two points in this entire text where we kind of lose the trees, lose the forest for the trees, that we get really focused on the parts and we lose sight of the whole. And one of those spots is right here off the bat as we look at Genesis 6, 1 through 4. It describes the sons of God. Verse 2 says, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took for their wives any they chose. What's interesting about that, there's lots of theories about who the sons of God were. Some say that they were the lineage of Cain and thus wickedness and passing on evil from generation to generation. I have a tendency to believe that the sons of God here in Genesis 6 were fallen angels. They were Satan's companions. And I've come to that conclusion for a few reasons. If you're a Bible scholar, you might want to take some notes here. Even if you're not, I think it's interesting that the Scripture points into Scripture. They were called the sons of God, which is really not a term used for mankind. In Job, as Satan and his minions come to the Lord and ask for one they might tempt, the scripture says there in Job 1 verse 6, sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. Humans would not have come to present themselves to the Lord, nor would they have come with Satan. Second Peter chapter 2 and Jude verses 6 and 7 refer to angels in the days of Noah. And it refers to the reality that they left their position of authority and their proper dwelling. And it goes on to describe the immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah in both of those passages. Well, here, I believe it's a clear reference to the fallen angels in Noah's time who are creating immorality among the daughters of men. Result is an offspring of the race of giants called the Nephilim. 
Now the Nephilim are around till the times of David. But the truth of the matter, it doesn't really matter who really the sons of God are, what the point and the focus of this time and the point of this passage is that wickedness is all over the earth. The earth is corrupt. Sin has overrun and overtaken the earth. It's a descriptive reality of how evil and wickedness and violence and darkness have come upon God's creation. Look at verse 5 with me. It describes the wickedness of man is great on the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Not just evil sometimes, not just a little bit of evil, but only evil continually. Verse 11, the scripture says that the earth was corrupt. The earth was filled with violence. Not a little violence, but filled with violence. All flesh had been corrupted. Sin had impacted creation. And like a computer virus that infiltrates the network and corrupts every file, sin has infiltrated humanity and corrupted it all. All flesh in the earth and evil had overrun God's creation. Now there's two results of this evil. Result number one, the Lord regrets. This is the second reason preachers don't like to preach this passage. This is a little confusing. And again, don't lose sight for the whole for because we're looking and focused on the parts. I would encourage you to consider verse six. The Lord says, the Lord regretted, and it grieved his heart. And it seems strange that the Lord would regret. We, we know God to be perfect in all of his ways. In fact, Numbers 23, James chapter one, tell us that the Lord does not change, that he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He has a reality about him where he doesn't need to change his mind. But here it says he regrets. There's another part, another moment in scripture in 1 Samuel chapter 15, where the Lord says that he regrets making Saul king. And so what does it mean for the Lord to regret? Well, we look back at 1 Samuel chapter 15, later on through that story, verse 29, it says this, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Here we see that the regret of man is very different than the regret of God. To regret here in the Hebrew means to be pained. It means to have a hurt. It means to experience a sorrow and a loss. It would be like a hurt parent seeing the disobedience of his children. So it pained God to see how wicked men and women had become. Now to be clear, the regret of God is not like the regret of man. We, we speak of the regret of God, and, but we must remember his foreknowledge that God knows all things. He, he knows what has happened, what is happening, what is to happen. He is fully aware in his foreknowledge of everything. When, when I'm regret, I'm sorry for what I've done because I wish it would have turned out differently. I wasn't aware of the outcome. But God is always aware of the outcome. Yet he still may choose what he may regret. Now, not to confuse you more, but to add clarity, this is what author theologian and preacher John Piper says. God is able to feel sorrow for an act in full view of foreknown evil, of foreknown pain, and of sorrow and misery. And yet go ahead and do it for wise reasons. For us as man to do something regrettable seems foolish. Why would we do that? I don't want to regret anything. 
doing something regrettable for the greater good and the perfect plan, well, that's why God is God. He chooses the pain knowing he may regret it. And that's difficult for us to understand, but we see here that there is a sorrow over man's sin. Simply, God's disappointment was not with human creation, but with human sin. And so the first result of evil is that the Lord regrets. The second result of evil is that the Lord resolves. So in verse 7, he's going to resolve this sin. Scripture says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. The Lord's going to resolve evil and resolve wickedness by destroying the earth, by destruction. Now in the ESV, it says to blot out, which means to annihilate, which means to wipe out, to remove to destroy. Verse 13 supports this idea because the scripture says he's going to make an end of all flesh. He's going to destroy everything. Then in verse 17 tells us how. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Now at first glance, this is incredibly alarming. God is going to send a flood to destroy all life on earth except for what lives in the sea. All of it is gone for it's all corrupted. And yes, a few chapters ago in Genesis chapter 1, when he creates everything, he says it's good. In fact, he says it's very good, but it's a very different world a few chapters later as sin has corrupted the earth and taken over. So much that the earth must be destroyed. This is a tough narrative. It's a tough passage for lots of reasons, but that's not the entirety of the story. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Then it goes on to describe Noah, that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. What's interesting here, in the middle of evil and the wicked ways and the sin, there was one set apart who had not given into temptation, who had not given into the violence, who had not given into the corruption. Noah was favorable with God, was righteous before him, was blameless, walked with him. Now, what's interesting about Noah, Noah was righteous and blameless, and it has really less to do about Noah and more to do about God's grace on Noah. You see, all Noah did was relinquish control. God, you're in control, so I'm going to let you do what you want to do through me. I'm going to be the man that you've called to be. I'm going to be in line with you because you're in control. So often we think that to be righteous means we've got to do a lot of things. Truthfully, all we got to do is let the Lord be in control, and those other things we'll naturally do because God is at the helm. And so this morning, as we're thinking about the evil in the earth, there's this huge contrast to the righteousness of Noah. And God's going to use Noah in a way of continuing mankind. God gives instructions to Noah to build an ark. And in that ark, God will provide a refuge for humanity to continue. So Noah builds an ark. And he gathers male and female, of bird kind, of the animal kind, of the creeping things kind, and he gathers food. And in stark contrast to all the evil around, Noah, verse 22, did all that God had commanded him. Noah's response in the midst of evil was obedience. So the ark is built, the animals are cared for, and in verse chapter 7, we will see the flood come, and we will see God at work recreating humanity. 
So what do we do with this historical narrative? What do we do with Genesis chapter 6? How do we to respond to this reality of evil, God's destruction to destroy evil, yet there is a glimmer of hope in the life of Noah and his family? Well, I think it asks us to ask three questions this morning. Question number one, what does God, excuse me, what does Genesis 6 say about man? What does Genesis 6 say about man? I think it says a couple of things. One, we are corruptible. We are sinful. Paul says it this way in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are prone to sin. That left to our own, the flesh is drawn to sin. And there's no immunity to sin. There's no vaccine. There's no boosters. We're all prone to sin. It reminds me of the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Our, in our humanity, in our flesh, in ourselves, we are prone to sin. And we see that here in Genesis, as the earth is overrun with sin and violence and evil. Man ignores sin. We're really good at ignoring sin. You see, we didn't really heed the warnings found throughout Genesis 3 and 4 and 5. We find ourselves where sin is increasing so much so because of our disobedience before the Lord. We ignored the warning. And we do that really, really well. But in the midst of sin, we also see that man is served well by honoring the Lord. There is blessing in obedience. Now, I want to be careful here. I don't want us to get lost in the idea that, that God's design for us all is to have all this blessing, all the health, and all the wealth. That's not what Genesis 6 is saying. What it is saying, though, is there are those who disobey, and there is consequences. And there are those who do obey, and there is blessing. I was reading uh, in 2 Kings chapter 17 and 18 this last week, and, and as I was reading, I was thoughtful about Genesis 6. And if you know your Bible, Genesis, excuse me, first, excuse, 2 Kings chapter 17 is about Hosea. And Hosea is the uh, king over Israel. And the problem with many kings over Israel is they were evil, and Hosea certainly was that. Hosea was an evil king. Like many before him, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And as a result, the Assyrians capture the Israelites from Israel, and they hold them captive and send them into exile. And the scripture is clear as to why that happened. Listen to this in 2 Kings 17 and 7. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, under the land of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared their gods. And they walked in the customs of the nations, whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs of the king that the Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. The Bible is very clear in this moment. Israel experiences the consequences of sin because they did not obey the Lord. You know, we in 2022, we look back at the stories of old and we say, oh, Genesis 6, boy, I bet that must have been tough for those guys. And so often we think, well, I'd probably be more like Noah than I would be like the people who were on the earth. But truthfully, we're all enveloped in the temptation and the prone to sin. But there's a stark contrast in 2 Kings. It's not just Hosea, but... As you turn the page in chapter 18, it describes the king of Judah, and his name was Hezekiah. 
And the scripture says that he did right in the eyes of the Lord in chapter 18, verse 5. He trusted the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among the kings of Judah after him or among those who were before him. For he held fast the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went out. He prospered. There is this incredible distinction after the flood where man continues to sin and man continues to have consequences. But man who obey will have blessing and the prosperity of God on them. Yet we still sin. We're still caught by the nature of sin in our life. So the question I might have for some of us in the room is, are you living like Noah, blameless and righteous and walking with God and letting God be in control? Or are you more like the men of the earth, controlled by sin? You know what sin does and when it's in control, we become men and women of deceit. We try to lie our way out of it. We pretend that it doesn't exist on our life and we fake it. This last weekend or this weekend, right now, we've got a hundred or so teenagers who are at the weekend retreat called The Lodge. And I was there yesterday speaking on this very issue. And I was imploring and encouraging our students, if our students could begin a life that is not controlled by sin, that's not marked by deceit, trying to fake it and hide it, but truly confessing their sin before the Lord, that's a life well lived. And so we too should be encouraged by that same idea. What does Genesis 6 say about man? Man is sinful, but there is consequence to sin and there is obedience. Excuse me, there is great blessing in obedience. What does Genesis 6 say about sin? Second question. What does Genesis 6 say about sin? Well, sin grows, takes over. It's like a weed or a virus. All it needs is a host. Sin left untouched will overwhelm you. Sin has consequences. That consequences are a broken relationship with God and utter destruction. You know, the Bible says it this way in Romans 6.43, for the wages of sin is death. That the wages of sin is death. That what's to come because of sin will lead to death. The writer of Proverbs 16.25 says, whatever seems right to man, but in the end, it's going to lead to destruction. I remember this as a kid seeing the Bob Newhart show. Some of you all may be familiar with that. Some of you guys a little younger than me probably don't know what that is. Bob Newhart plays a psychologist called Bob Hartley. And in one of the most famous episodes, this young lady comes in and she's dealing with claustrophobia. And he says, I can cure you. There's two words that you need to hear today. And she says, what are they? She's hanging on the end of the chair. And then he yells at her, stop it. And she's confused and he yells at her again and again. That's a great remedy to sin, isn't it? So easy to say, but so hard to do. Truth is, it's not that easy, but we do need to take it very seriously. I think we have unfortunately grown up in a culture where we excuse sin entirely too easy for fear of offending someone or not including someone. We, the church, must stand for righteousness. That sometimes means we call sin, sin. We've got to proactively engage in keeping sin at bay. So my challenge for us this morning, as we understand what sin does in Genesis 6, we can't ignore it. 
We've got to be watchful against it. We must stand at guard. The enemy is prowling around like a lion ready to devour. And we must be ready. No one wakes up in the morning and says, you know, I think today I'll really disappoint the Lord. No one does that. No one wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, I think I really want to mess up my life today. But we, in a sense, do that when we're not watching and carefully guarding our lives against sin. So how do we do that? How do we keep sin at bay? I think it starts with the mind. I think sin hides within our thoughts. Temptation always begins in the recesses of our mind. And I think this is why Paul says in Romans chapter 12, hey, don't be conformed to the world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our mind is the place where we can keep sin at the gate and not allow it in. Trash in, trash out. You reap what you sow. If you plant the gospel seed in your mind, you will sow the gospel seed. If you plant garbage in your mind, you will sow garbage. You will reap that. It's going to come out. So here's a question that may hurt. What kind of media is your mind downloading? Listen, I've got a phone. I've got all this stuff that everyone else has. And let me just tell you, there's so much trash that comes to the palm of our hand and to our living rooms. And we, the church, very too easily dismiss it. And I just want to encourage you that righteousness is really hard to grow in the midst of garbage. And that if God has called us to be different than the wickedness and the evilness and the violence and the darkness of the world, we must be challenged to renew our mind. Just because it's on the Netflix top 10 does not mean it's a good idea for you to watch. What is on your screen is in your heart. So my challenge and my encouragement to us is let's renew our minds by cleaning up our screens. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, that we can't just clean up our screens. We really have to take captive every thought. Paul says we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself against the knowledge of God when we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. What happens in the mind is connected to the heart, it's connected to our actions. The writer of Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a man thinks, so is he. So the question for us today as we think about the reality of sin, is sin in control? Is it corrupting your heart and your mind? Do you have unconfessed sin in your life? Are you being deceptive and faking it to avoid being honest about your sin before God and before others? Can I just give you an encouragement today that Confession is the gateway to restoration. As a child of God, sin does not belong in your life. And you, you have the solution through Christ. Confession is the gateway to restoration. Last question this morning, we'll close. What does Genesis 6 say about God? What does it say about man? What does it say about sin? What does it say about God? God does not tolerate sin. God won't live among sin. God will punish sin like a homeowner who recognizes termites have come into the foundation and it's all got to come down. God eradicates sin. We also realize that God grieves. 
Now he doesn't regret creating man, he regrets how sin has corrupted man. And he's grieved to his heart that, that human emotions are trying to explain God's sorrow. And I would say it this way, understanding that a grieving God over the sins of man should compel us to be obedient to him. He grieves over our sin, not only over the nature of sin in us, but what it does to us. How it separates us in that relationship with him. How it provides consequences and not blessing. God's design for us is not to have the pain of sin over us. So God grieves. But I also know this about God. God provides mercy in the midst of wrath. And we see that in Noah. We see that in Noah creating the ark. We see that in the male and female of every living thing coming to the ark. God's got a plan of mercy in the midst of wrath. And it's a very intentional plan. He gives Noah very intentional instructions on what the ark should be made of, how long and how wide and how to make it. Very specific instructions. You know what? I would say it this way, that his mercy is not a whim. But it's a calculated, strategic move to reveal his character and his heart for mankind. The ark is not just a boat, but it's a symbol of mercy in the middle of justice and destruction. You may be bad to the boat, but I would say there is a boat for you. There is redemption and refuge and a way out for you. In the middle of your pain, in the middle of the flood of sin in your life, there is a boat and his name is Jesus. Jesus wants to rescue from the destruction, from the sin, from the pain, from the death. And his desire is that you know him. He wants to save you, to know you and to bring life to you. You have to trust him by receiving his grace and his mercy. You gotta get on the boat. You trust him by confessing your sins and calling him to be Lord of your life. And some of you in the room have done that. But as you read Genesis, you wanna to commit to the Lord to be the Lord of your life. You see, at the end of the service today, there's gonna to be some pastors out in the connection area. I'll be down front. At the end of the service, if you really feel like you've never received God's mercy and it's God's grace, and you sense this flood around you, and you're looking for refuge, I just wanna invite you to ask one of our pastors, ask one of our team members, ask a volunteer, how do I receive Jesus? It's simple, it's easy, and it's important. So I encourage you to consider that. For those of you in the room who have done that, I wanna challenge you to do something a little different today. In this moment, it could be that the Lord is calling you to come to him, but that means you gotta get out of the boat, your boat of refuge, whatever you have been trying to live with or on or through that's going, that you thought would provide some sort of help, some sort of relief. You see, I think sometimes we forget that we all have a tendency to build our own boat. 
For some of us, it's, man, if I could just make enough money, I'm good. For some of us, if I can just do this, if I can have this relationship, if I could get this kind of career path, maybe the boat that you've been trying to build is less to do about finances, more to do about relationships, or, or maybe the boat you've been trying to build is a sinking ship because you are so close to being found out and losing it all. And I would just invite you to get out of the boat and walk to Jesus like Peter did in the Gospels. This altar is open for you. This is the place where you can do business with God. And it may not just be about sin, but maybe in the midst of your flood, you're overwhelmed with situations around you that are of concern to you. And you're bringing those situations to the Lord. And you're saying, God, just as you had mercy in the midst of wrath, you will provide mercy in the midst of the situation that I'm most concerned about. It could be a family member. It could be a friend. It could be a situation at work. But you've been hanging on to that. And the Lord is saying, come to me. Let me be your refuge. And I would invite you to make this altar a place where you can do business with the Lord this morning. Come to him. Commit to him. And be renewed by him today.